All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, what was prophesied in Isaiah 700 years before is prophesied again in Mark chapter 10, where we're going to turn tonight. This time, not 700 years prior to the events, but one week prior to them. And of course, as we come to this passage, we're reminded of what the entire Gospel of Mark tells us about Jesus, and that is that Jesus is that suffering servant. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus is the suffering servant, come to serve and to save his people. So turn back to Mark chapter 10, and I know that we just read all of Isaiah 53, but let's read our passage in Mark 10, starting in verse 32, and then we'll walk through it together. Mark 10, 32-52. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. 
Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but served, and to give his life a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. And so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. You saw as we read through that there's really two scenes here. The first scene describes the reality of the sacrifice. Jesus describes the reality of the sacrifice, and the first section of that, we see his compassionate prediction. You see, there are three cycles in the Gospel of Mark of this same kind of interaction Jesus has with his disciples. It happens in chapter 8, it happens in chapter 9, it happens again in chapter 10. And this cycle is when Jesus comes and he predicts his passion. He predicts that when they get to Jerusalem, something's going to happen, that he's going to be delivered over to his enemies, and that he will be killed. Every time, in chapter 8, 9, and 10, when he finishes that, his disciples respond very, very poorly, with enormous pride and arrogance. And because of that, Jesus is forced to teach them the upside-down humility values of the kingdom of God. We see that at the end of chapter 8, the end of chapter 9, and here at the end of chapter 10 again. And so we see in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Jesus has, has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there. And it says, some were amazed and some were fearful. Well, why were the, the people following along with Jesus' crowd, why were they fearful? Well, they weren't afraid of Jesus, or they wouldn't have been with him. Rather, they were afraid of what was about to happen. You see, in John chapter 9, it tells us that the chief priests and, and the religious leaders had said that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Associating with Jesus was now an offense. In John chapter 11, the disciples tell him, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Not only is, is it an offense to be associated with Jesus, but now they are actually after him and his life. John 11.57 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was... He was to report it so they might seize him. Now, it's an offense not only to be associated with Jesus, but not to report it to the authorities. And so why were they fearful? 
Well, they're fearful <laughs> that the religious leaders are going to find out that they have been with Jesus and not told on him. They're following along because they are amazed at his teaching and, and they really believe him to be something unique and special, the prophet that had come, and yet they're afraid. They're afraid even for their own lives and families and livelihoods. Jesus really puts all that aside. <laughs> and he is walking towards Jerusalem. And verse 32 says, He took the twelve aside and he began to tell them again what was going to happen to him. Look at verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. I want to briefly walk through the next couple verses in our passage and show you how ridiculously accurate his prediction is. Okay? He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Matthew 26, 66, what do you think the answer he deserves? Death. It says he will be delivered over. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered over. Now the funny part about Acts 2.23 is it doesn't say he was delivered over by these people. Who does it say he was delivered over by? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. When he was delivered over to the chief priests and, and the scribes there in Jerusalem, it was because God had perfectly orchestrated that. But it finishes, Acts 2.23, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Verse 34 says they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will scourge him, and they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Mark 15.31 tells us that the chief priests, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Mark, 16, or Mark 14, 65 says some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. Scourging is, uh, you guys know this, is a short whip. And on the end of each of the tassels of the whip is sewn in some kind of small rock or glass or other sharp object. So that when the, the victim was hit with it, it would cause bleeding and, and scratching. Mark 15, 15 says that Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Jesus predicted that they would kill him, and in Mark 15, 24, it says they crucified him. But Jesus is right again when he says three days later he will rise again, because in Mark 16, 6, it says, Do not be amazed, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified, he has risen. He is not here. Every single thing that Jesus said comes true. Why? Because he's God. Because he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Because Isaiah 46 says that God determines the end from the beginning. Now the question is, for you and me... If Jesus can so accurately predict exactly what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, why is he telling us all this? Well, the benefit of him telling the disciples is not for him, right? He already knows, okay? He doesn't need the information. It's for them, and, and through the scripture, it's for us. Why do we need to know beforehand what's going to happen? I think two things jump out at me. One is that it's not an accident. God perfectly orchestrated all of it. It was all the plan. Uh, Jesus' enemies didn't win. 
He won. He went to the cross exactly as he was supposed to do. He executed it perfectly on cue. The second reason why I think this is amazing that he predicts it is this shows how much he loves us. Why do I say that? Because he knows what's coming. And he's still walking, right? He says, I'm walking to Jerusalem. Why? So I can have a party? No. So that I can be mocked and spit on and beaten and scourged and killed. That's where we're going. And he keeps walking. For us, if you're in Christ, for you, he loves you. The application there is really easy, right? Be thankful for Jesus and his commitment to redemption, his commitment to his people to be the sacrifice for them. This is a silly application, but I think it's valid. How can we be like Christ in this? Communicating is really helpful for people. See his kindness and sharing with them what's going to happen so that they're not distressed when they see it come to pass. Are you good at planning ahead for, for your friends and family and communicating what's going on so that you're allaying their fears so they're not, they're not afraid when things come to pass? Jesus loves us. He knew exactly what he was walking into, and he kept walking. So we see his compassionate prediction. Next, as is the cycle, we see the disciples' arrogant response. You see, James and John, they come up and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And uh, I'm a dad, and sometimes my daughter she comes up and says, Dad, say yes. And I say, no. That's the answer, right? Because I have no clue what I'm about to sign up for. They come up and they say, We want you to do whatever. We just need you to say yes. And Jesus says, What do you want? They said, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. You see, the one on the right in, in ancient authority was the sun or the air. The one on the left was the chief advisor. These are the two chief seats in God's kingdom. Matthew 20 tells us that uh, the sons of Zebedee and their mother came to Jesus. Depending on how you read some verses, you might believe that James and John are Jesus' cousins and that their mother is his, his aunt. Okay? Possible, but it could be that they all came, and then Jesus got asked again, and Jesus responds. The question is, why are they thinking about the ruling on 12 thrones, right? And so they, they come up to him and say, just so you know, the whole throne thing, let us know, we'll be right there with you. And one commentary, the expositor's commentary, makes the comment that, that their confession and their request to him do reveal some level of you know, faith and confidence that he's going to bring about what he said in the kingdom. Hey, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be right there with you. The problem, it says, is they fail to comprehend that the kingdom will be achieved not through conquest and domination, but through service and sacrifice. <coughs> which is why in verse 38, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Can you imagine being Jesus, understanding what you are walking into, and then coming up and saying, hey, as soon as you get there, we want, we want the best seats in the house. Says, you don't know. You don't understand what we're doing here. He says, Are you really able to drink the cup that I drink? In the Old Testament, the, the cup normally was related to God's judgment, drinking God's wrath. 
in Mark 14, you remember when Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He, he's weeping blood in, in the, the garden, sweating blood, and he says, all things are possible for you, Father. Remove this cup from me. What's that cup? It's the cup of God's judgment that's going to come on him at the cross. In Isaiah 51, verses, verse 22, it's called the chalice of God's anger. Jesus looks at them and says, you really think you can drink down the full cup of the wrath of God? They don't understand. He says, do you think you can be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And in the Old Testament, baptism usually had to do with this, an overwhelming flood, feeling like you were drowning, this, this overwhelming despair. Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. In Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. You see, to ask for a place of honor in His glory was a request to share His suffering, since one is the prerequisite of the other. They just didn't understand that. Verse 39, in response to that, him telling him, you don't understand. You don't understand what you're asking. They say, we are able. Sign us up. We're ready. We can do it. Put me in the game, coach. And Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. Can you imagine what happened in his soul when he had to tell them that? You are going to drink the cup that I drink. You are going to be in the baptism with which I am baptized. There's something admirable about their commitment, but it breaks his heart to have to tell them they are going to suffer. And we know that they did. Acts 12.2 tells us that James was put to death with a sword. And Revelation 1 tells us that John was exiled on the island of Patmos. They were suffering for the sake of the gospel. Jesus goes on in verse 40, But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those who have, for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is, is not saying that he's not God and he didn't get to decide these things in the councils of the Trinity. What he's saying is, I'm not making the plan right now. Okay? This isn't something we're deciding, we're figuring out on the fly, and by the time we get to Jerusalem, we'll, we'll have a, a structure figured out. It says, this has been planned since the foundation of the world. This is for whom it has been prepared. Matthew 20, verse 23 says, it's been prepared by my Father. In God's good plan for redemption, the kingdom is already ready. It's, it's already set up. Don't worry. We're not, we're not hiring for, for vacancies here. In verse 41, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. That word indignant has to do with being angry, uh, but it's angry because you're embarrassed because of something that happened. It's the same word earlier in the chapter when the disciples tried to keep the children from Jesus, you remember? And it says he was indignant with them and said what? Permit the little children to come to me. He was angry with them, but he was embarrassed that they didn't understand, and they were trying to keep people away from him, who was Jesus, the Savior. And so the ten, they, they're angry and embarrassed, and, and I think a little jealous, right? Because one, they're angry at these guys. They're so proud and arrogant that they walk up and say, hey, uh, you need two chief advisors. We are here for you, right? But they're also angry at these men. Why? Because they asked first. They got to Jesus before they did. They were like, oh, why, did, why didn't you tell? We should have. Ah! 
And now James and John are going to be in charge of the whole kingdom because you didn't remember to ask Jesus, right? They're indignant. They're angry with these two men. Just a reminder for you and me that there is a very fine line, a very fine line between spiritual zeal, wanting to serve with everything you have, wanting to love Jesus better than anyone has ever loved Jesus, and enormous arrogance, right? James and John walked up and offered this to Jesus not because they thought they were proud, because they thought they were given themselves for Jesus. And we read this and we're like, these guys are full of right? A very fine line between spiritual zeal and really just being full of yourself. How can we be like Christ in this? He is so patient. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow. But he has dealt with these guys every day for three years. And they're still asking dumb questions. <laughs> he is so patient. Are you patient with people that ask you dumb questions every time? Are you patient? with others. I love how he, he asks them questions. He leads them to the truth, right? He's helping them understand. He's so kind. He's so patient. The next section is what he has to teach them, right? He tells them about his passion. They respond with arrogance, and so he has to teach them about humility. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. Uh, you can't, there's not actually air quotes in Greek, but Jesus is saying, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, the, the great men, you might say, exercise authority over them. So these guys, they, they think they're in charge, they think they're important, but they're just... <laughs> It says they lord it over them. It's, it's domineering, authoritative behavior. They're, they're just tiny little dictators. In Acts chapter 19, this word lord it over is actually used of physically subduing someone. He says that the leadership, the, the pagan secular leadership, they lead by a heavy hand. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, it tells us that, that the, ones, the, the men in the church who are qualified to be elders, to be, to be pastors in a church, they cannot be like this. They cannot lord it over the flock. They, they lead by example. This kind of domineering, authoritative leadership is a disqualification for a man who wants to serve as an elder. And Jesus says, the leadership out in the world, that's the only way they get things done, is being heavy-handed. But verse 43 but it is not this way among you. I like how he doesn't say it shouldn't be this way among you. He says it's not an option. It is not this way among my disciples. My disciples do not lead by authoritarianism. Rather, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. It's very fascinating that he chooses to use this word wish. Whoever wishes to become great, whoever wishes to be first. Why? Because earlier when he said, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask you. He says, what do you want? What do you wish? What's your desire? What was the answer? And it would be great. He says, the one who wants that, like you just said, the only way to get it is to be the servant, the slave of all. 
The Zondervan commentary says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Plato says, how can anyone be happy when he is the slave of anyone else at all? The slave experienced civil death with no legal or human rights. That's the thinking of the world. You, you can't be happy if you're, if you're anyone's slave, if you work for anyone else except yourself. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, the greatest is the one who is a servant. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, a disciple is to serve others, not his own interests, voluntarily and sacrificially. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, recognize that you don't get what you want. That's not what you signed up for. You signed up to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others and for the glory of God. And just so you know, God isn't impressed with you. Even if you are, are beautiful and intelligent and smart and skilled and, and, and you own Facebook, I don't care. God doesn't care. He is not surprised. He is not impressed. He doesn't think, man, this one's really good. i got to have them. You're all sinners. I'm a sinner. God doesn't need any of us. He can use a talking donkey to get his job done if he has to, right? <laughs> Rather, he desires to save you so that you can serve him and serve others. You see, as true greatness is actually found in humility. So where in your life is pride and arrogance welling up in you, and you need to fight in your own heart to pursue humility? How, how does Jesus know that the greatest ones among us are the servants? How does he know that's true? Well, verse 45 tells us, because he knows the best example of this in the universe. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but serve to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man, even the Son of Man, he, he takes a direct messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, right? The Son of Man will come up before the Ancient of Days and be given glory and dominion and a kingdom. He says, I am that. I, I am the Son of Man. And I know that the Son of Man, the greatest one ever, comes to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. We see this in Jesus' life, right? We see it even in his, his incarnation and his kenosis, where, where he became like us. Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus, uh, God became like you. You understand? You understand how much of a demotion that was, Right? Psalm 113 says he condescends to even behold the things in his creation. God became man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And John 13, a couple days after this interaction he has with his disciples in Mark 10, tells us that he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Being a human wasn't humiliating enough for the Son of Man. He became even the servant of his creations. Jesus says, you know how I know that humility is the sign of true greatness? Because I'm right here. I am God and I am serving you people. Right? And it says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life. <coughs> See guys, I, I think you all know this, but you know, sake of clarity, here we go. God is the creator of everything, Genesis 1.1. Psalm 24.1 tells us that he owns everything and he owns you. God is in charge and he gets to decide what you do with your life and how you live it and how you relate to him. We know that God is holy. He is unique in his majesty. He is unique in his moral purity. God is the moral standard of all creation. God says to dwell with him and to be pleasing with him, you have to be perfectly holy. You're not. You're all sinners. You need someone more holy than you to advocate for you to God. You need a substitute. And in God's kindness and wisdom and perfect provision, He gave Jesus Christ as that substitute for all who would repent of their sins, turn to Jesus Christ, and put their full confidence and faith that He is the only way of salvation. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is ransom for many. He came as that substitute. Without this, without this story, without this gospel, we are all headed for hell. No questions asked. That's it. That's our eternity. But Jesus Christ came as the Son of Man, humbled Himself, and is our substitute. Mark 14, 24, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Romans 5, 15, The grace of God, by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, abounds to the many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Titus 2, 14, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ does for us according to the scriptures. The Expositor's Commentary says the one takes the place of the many. What should have happened to them happened to him instead. Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to be mocked <coughs> and scourged and spit upon and killed so that you don't have That it says many, the ransom for many, it's not all. The Bible is abundantly clear that there are some, there are many, who will be punished for the just punishment of their sin for eternity in hell. But God doesn't just save a few. He saves many. Praise God for his gift of Christ as the substitute. We can imitate and be like Christ as we humbly sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. You're not getting anyone into heaven on your account, but you can serve like Him. You can sacrifice like Him. You can love others like Him. The Son of Man, 
a ransom for me. A few of you are thinking, why on earth did he read to the end of the chapter? Because the second scene here, we'll call it an example of our salvation, is the most wonderful picture of what we've just talked about. You see, the Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters, okay? If you were to take that Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, and break it down into an outline, chapters 1 through 10 primarily talks about how Jesus is a servant. Chapters 11 through 16 primarily talks about how Jesus is the Savior. Now, if I were to ask you about this story about Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, you've all heard it before. So would you put that in the Jesus-serving-people category or the Jesus-being-a-savior category? You all would most likely say, with me, I think that's him serving someone. He, he goes to someone who needs help and, and he heals him. And you'd be right. But I tell you what, it's almost like the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing because this is the perfect transition between Jesus being the servant and Jesus being the Savior. Let's walk through it. Let me show you this. This story, at least in Mark, is a beautiful picture of salvation. First, we see a need, right? They came to Jer Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was on the road. Now, you might have heard before, Luke 18 tells us that they were coming to Jericho, approaching Jericho. Mark 10 tells us they were leaving Jericho. Well, which one's right? Well, actually, there were two sites of Jericho, an old city and a new city that was being built. They were in between in the mile, and so therefore they were, geniusly, both leaving Jericho and approaching Jericho. It's almost like the Bible knows what's doing, okay? It says there's a man here. He is blind. He has no sight. He is a beggar. He has no possessions. His name is Bartimaeus, which interestingly means that he has no name. How do I know that? Because bar, the prefix bar, it means the son of Timaeus. Bar Timaeus means the son of Timaeus, meaning he doesn't actually have his own name. He's not that important. He can't see. He has nothing. He doesn't even have a name to go by. He's sitting by the side of the road. When he heard that it was Jesus coming, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And many were telling him to be quiet. They were sternly telling him. They were, they were rebuking him. Stop calling for Jesus. We're busy right now. But if they knew anything about Jesus, they would know that this guy is right up Jesus' alley, right? This guy is a beggar. He has a great need. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus preached and said, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the beggars in spirit. This is the kind of guy Jesus came for. And so, we have a great need, and then there's a call. Just like you and I have a great need of our sin problem, and then Jesus calls for us, Mark 10, 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Okay, again, sanctified imagination with me, guys. Think about this. Jesus is walking where? To Jerusalem. Why? To bear the entire weight of the wrath of God for the sins of all his people. And his disciples are asking silly questions. And a guy is yelling at him from the side of the road. And if it was you and me, what would we do? What would we say? Say, everyone needs to stop bothering me because I've got more important things going on. But what does it say he did? 
It says, Jesus stopped. He stopped. And he said, call him here. Warren Rearsby said, Jesus Christ, God's suffering servant, on his way to the cross, and yet he stops to serve a blind beggar. What love, what mercy, and what grace. You want to be like Jesus? How about you inconvenience yourself, even while you're doing important things, to serve and sacrifice for other people? That's how you can be like Christ. His willingness to serve others when he was too busy is amazing. Someone in the crowd tells the blind man, hey, Jesus is calling. Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. Now this word, take courage, or, or take heart, it's only used seven times in the New Testament, and this is the only instance that Jesus doesn't say it. Normally Jesus is the one that communicates this. Matthew 9, verse 2, when, when they brought the paralytic to him, he says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Or Matthew 9, 22, where he looks at the woman and says, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. Jesus is the one that says, take heart. You don't have to worry. But here someone in the crowd looks at the beggar and says, Take courage. He's calling for you. I think they were as amazed as anyone. And so, like in our salvation, there's a need, there's a call, and there's a response. In our salvation, we have a sin problem. Jesus effectually calls us, and we respond in repentance and faith. Now here, verse 50, I love eyewitness accounts. Can I just say that? You just get awesome details, all right? Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Now, this man, it said, is a beggar, which means he owns nothing, which means the only thing he actually owns is what? His cloak. It would have been laid across his lap while he sat on the side of the road, hoping that someone would drop an alm in his lap. He would wrap it up in his coat, and that coat and whatever is in the middle of it is the only thing he owns in the entire world. But they said, take heart, come to Jesus, and what did he do with the cloak? He ditched it. It's gone. Throwing it aside to the side of the road in the middle of a massive crowd. He knows how big a crowd is. He heard them coming, by the way. And I love this. There is a word for stand up, and there is a unique word for jumped up. He jumped up. Apparently he can't see. His legs are fine. Okay? He jumped <laughs> up, and he came to Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but... I really see repentance and faith in this. Repentance is when you put away your sin and you come with nothing to Jesus and say, you're the only thing that's going to save me. This guy owned nothing in the world except his cloak. And he left it behind because Jesus was worth it. He goes, throwing aside his only possession to Jesus. And in the context of Mark 10, this is really shocking because earlier in this chapter... Jesus called a man to himself, and that young man went away sad. Why? Because he owned much property. He wasn't willing to throw away his property, but this beggar was willing to throw away his cloak. Verse 51, answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Why does Jesus ask this question? Because he just asked this question, didn't he? You remember? He just asked this to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? 
And what was the answer? These guys who had lived with him every day for years, what's the answer they gave? We want to be important. And he looks at this blind beggar and says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. Now on the one hand, that might come across to us as a very self-centered request. He definitely benefited from it, don't get me wrong. But I think there's more here. He doesn't say rabbi. He says rabboni, which is only used one other time in the Gospels, and it means my teacher. The only other time it's used is in John 20, verse 16. After the resurrection, when Jesus looks at Mary, because she thinks he's a gardener, and he says, Mary. And she says, my teacher. She knows him. She has faith in him. How do I know that Bartimaeus has faith when he comes and says, Rabboni, I want my sight. How do I know that? The easiest way is the next verse says that Jesus praised him for his faith. So that was easy. That was easy. <laughs> the second reason is that this guy stood and looked Jesus in the face. Oh, sorry. He looked Jesus in the face <laughs> and said, I want to regain my sight. And he meant it. Third reason I know he had faith is because when Jesus came walking down the road, what did he call him? Jesus, son of David. He knew who he was the whole time. He's God incarnate. He is the one. He's the Messiah coming. This one can have mercy on me. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, my teacher, I want to see you. As in our salvation, there is a need, call, a response, and there's healing. In our salvation, we're washed free of our sins, and we are justified before the Father. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight. Guys, one moment. you got to put yourself here. One moment, this guy was blind. One moment, this guy could see. Like you closing your eyes and opening them up again. This guy had perfect vision. I don't know if it was 2020. He had vision. He went from being blind to seeing. And the only thing that happened in between those two moments was what? It was Jesus. Jesus was in between those two moments. Jesus healed him. said, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight. He was blind and he was not. And Jesus was the change. Look, your faith has made you well, or another translation would be, your faith has saved you. Interesting. When we're saved, there's a need, a call, a response, a healing, and then following. The beggar regained his sight and began following him on the road. You see, he didn't take his sight and go after his old life. He didn't take his sight and go try and find his cloak and if there were any coins in it. He didn't take his sight and go and do whatever he had been wanting to do for all this time he had been blind. He took his sight and followed Jesus. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Bartimaeus pictured discipleship clearly. He recognized his inability. 
he trusted Jesus as the one to give him mercy. And when he could see clearly, he began to follow Jesus. So let's wrap up with this. Let me just be really real with you guys. I had a blast getting to know you guys the last day. Got to talk to several of you, hear several of your testimonies of salvation. And honestly, all of you look pretty good to me. A couple of you even like showers and stuff. That was good. <laughs> but you look good on the outside. You look like people that really want to love Jesus and serve each other and read the Bible. But let's be really honest that, that I can't see your hearts like Jesus can. And it is very, very possible <laughs> that you are something on the outside that you're not on the inside. And only you know that, in the Lord. And if deep down inside of you, in your heart of hearts, you know that you are not a slave of Christ, but you're a slave of sin and your own selfishness. The beauty of the gospel is it doesn't have to be that way, right? The, the beauty of the gospel is that the call to the beggar is the same call to you. Take heart, he's, he's calling for you. Jesus Christ came to be the ransom for many. And if you are not saved by the power of Jesus' blood, it's your eternity on the line. And I really, really want to see you guys that way. Jesus is the perfect Savior. He's the perfect servant. The one come to serve and to save his people. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are good. You are a loving Father who has given us a way of salvation. God, thank you for Jesus. The perfect Son of God, Son of Man, come to the earth to be humbled for us. Going to the cross for us to be the Savior of the world, to be our substitute if we will repent of our sin and trust in you. God, I pray for every person in this room that there is no doubt in their mind and heart that they love you, that they are saved by the power of the gospel, that they are saved through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. God, there is no other way of salvation. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus, the suffering servant who came not to be served, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for men. <coughs> it's his, him, in his name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>